0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
1: In the late 1950s, a quirky older woman started turning up at the offices of the Educational Testing Service. She looked harmless enough. Glasses, nylon dresses, comfortable shoes. But the service's employees did not care for her. Some of them even started requesting the day off when they knew she'd come around. See, This woman did odd things. She'd walk the halls late at night, rifle through their papers, leave sticky fingerprints. She was always drinking this homemade energy mix she called Tiger's Milk, a blend of brewer's yeast milk and Hershey bars that she would smash with her own fists. Hence, the sticky fingers. The employees of the Educational Testing Service, or ETS, called her the little old lady in tennis shoes, or just that horrible woman.
2: The men at ETS just despised
1: her. Mervae Emre is an English professor at the University of Oxford and the author of The Personality Brokers. So, whereas the men of ETS had graduate degrees, many of them had PhDs, this woman did not. They made fun of her behind her back and also to her face about her lack of formal training, about the fact that she wasn't an expert. ETS is a company that runs the SATs. And in the 50s, they needed this woman. Or so the boss said. Because although they already dominated academic testing, ETS was ready to conquer new territory, personality testing. A good personality test could revolutionize childcare, marriage, work. Think about it, what if, You could hire not just the person with the best medical knowledge, but the person with the best personality to actually care for the sick. What if couples could figure out if they were compatible before they actually married the wrong person? What if you could raise every kid according to their unique temperament? And this woman had just the thing to accomplish all of this—a questionnaire. ETS just had to make sure it actually worked. She would
2: show up to the office and work very, very, very late into the night, work into weekends, not stop to eat. And she worked as hard as she could in order to prove that she was as good as the men who were responsible for verifying her instrument.
1: That woman was Isabel Briggs Myers, and her instrument, was the Myers-Briggs type indicator. If, by some small chance, you haven't taken the Myers-Briggs before, it works like this. You answered dozens of questions. Questions like, when you go somewhere for the day, would you rather, A, plan on what you'll do and when, or B, just go? Or questions about which words appeal to you, like if you had to choose between gentle and firm scheduled, or unplanned. And when you're finished, you get sorted into one of 16 personality types. Those types are made up of four dimensions, introvert versus extrovert, sensing versus intuitive, thinking versus feeling, and judging versus perceiving. Last time I took the test, I was an INFJ, introverted, intuitive, feeling, and judging.
0: I just took it, and I got INFP. Which apparently means I seem more spontaneous than you and more open to new experiences.
1: Oh, hello, reporter Chris Agusa. So I guess you are the fun one, but at least I get my work done before I start playing. Apparently, according to the Myers-Briggs website.
0: Well, it takes all sorts. So, Johanna, Myers-Briggs... When you first heard that name, you might have thought they were the two psychologists who designed the test, right?
1: Yes, that is absolutely the assumption that I made.
0: Okay, but actually the Myers and Briggs in question were Isabel and her mother. And that was a big sticking point for a lot of employees at ETS. As they put it, Isabel was simply a very bright lady with a lot of enthusiasm, full of naive notions. Which sounds horribly patronizing. But maybe they were right to be skeptical.
1: We got interested in this question a few months ago when we made an episode about the word introvert. In that episode, we got into Carl Jung's theory of personality and why we seem to so enjoy slotting ourselves and our friends and our partners and everyone we know into these personality buckets. In researching that, everywhere we looked, we ran into the Myers-Briggs personality indicator. We talked to a psychologist who just could not believe the hold that this has on so many people.
0: I almost got into a fist with a guy one night when he just insisted that the Myers-Briggs is all truth and goodness.
1: And we talked to people whose lives were changed by the test.
0: That was the first time anybody had ever told me it was good to be me.
1: And over the next three weeks, in a special series, we're looking into the rise of the Myers-Briggs, Beginning with the strange story of Isabel and her mother, Catherine, two untrained but wildly ambitious outsiders who created the most popular and divisive personality test in the world. From Science Friday, this is Science Diction. I'm Johanna Mayer.
0: And I'm Chris Agusa. Today we're talking about the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator.
1: Catherine Cook went to college when she was just 14, graduated first in her class, and married the guy that graduated second, a certain Lyman Briggs. Lyman went on to a Ph.D. program in physics, but this is the late 1800s, and Catherine was stuck
2: there is never any expectation that she will do anything other than be his wife and become the mother of his children.
1: Merva Emery again, whose book, The Personality Brokers, is all about the Myers-Briggs type indicator.
2: And she has three children, two of whom die in very early infancy, and Isabel is the only one who survives. And she has what she describes at that moment as a crisis of faith. And she thinks, if I only have this one child, and if my entire life has to be determined by what I do with her as a mother, then I need to do something extraordinary, and I need to do something that is
1: helpful to other people. So Catherine made a decision. She was going to professionalize motherhood. She would tackle it with the same ambition that her husband applied in his physics lab, and by God, she was going to raise the most well-behaved, curious, exceptional child imaginable. All she needed was a laboratory and a test subject. So Catherine took over a section of her house and established what she called the Cosmic Laboratory of Baby Training, a.k.a. the living room. And her test subject, the baby to be trained, was Isabel.
0: It's a whimsical name the Cosmic Laboratory of Baby Training. But it was serious business. Isabel was still just a toddler, but Catherine ran daily obedience drills with her and diligently recorded the results in a research diary. There were no-no drills.
2: Where she puts Isabel's hand close to something that she's not supposed to touch, like a a candle. And she says no-no every time her daughter tries to touch it.
0: And just-stay drills. Which
2: is, Isabel is supposed to walk just close enough to something to be able to observe it, but not any closer than that. So when Isabel does well on these drills, she's rewarded with stories.
0: Yeah, Isabel had a pretty intense childhood. And whether or not it was her mother's training, Isabel did turn out to be an exceptional child. She was one of those kids who was good at everything, from piano to metalworking. She was reading novels at age five. A neighbor once warned Catherine that Isabel would die of brain fever if she didn't cool it. Soon, other mothers noticed how well-behaved Isabel was, so Catherine opened up the Cosmic Laboratory of Baby Training to other neighborhood kids, from 8-year-old Jane to 6-month-old Louie. And Catherine didn't just train these kids. She studied them. She wanted to know exactly who they were. So each month, Catherine sent parents a questionnaire about their children, their behavior, and their personality. Her goal wasn't to know each child's soul, like in a modern, we're all beautiful flowers with unique needs and dreams kind of way. Catherine believed that each person had a duty to fulfill, a service to society. Whether it was entertaining people on the stage, building homes, healing the sick, everyone had a role to play. And if we knew what type of person they were, we'd raise them right, slot them into the right box.
1: Catherine started writing a popular column on parenting, kind of like a precursor to celebrity mommy bloggers. Except her methods would not go over so well today. She once told another mother that spanking is medicine, and her articles had some very questionable titles. Like, she knew a woman whose daughter, Mary, had failed the first grade. And eventually, Mary made it into one of Catherine's articles, titled... Ordinary Theodore, and Stupid Mary. Things were going well for Catherine. She'd professionalized motherhood, cranked out a star child, and dispensed parenting advice to mothers across the nation. And then, Isabel left. Off to college. And Catherine? Bereft. Like her life's work had just up and vanished. Which it kind of had. She fell into a deep depression.
0: And then she had a dream. She told Isabel about it later. It was about Carl Jung, the Swiss analytical psychologist. He'd recently published what would become one of his most influential books, Psychological Types. And in Catherine's dream, Jung showed up at her house. He cut out paper dolls with her children and rode away on a giant horse. It was a weird dream, but Catherine took it as a calling. When she woke up, she took all of her own notes and burned them in the living room. She didn't need them anymore. From then on, she would turn her full attention to life as Young's disciple. And she became obsessed with Young. As in, she wrote not-so-subtly-gay fanfiction inspired by him. She also rewrote the lyrics to the 1925 Broadway hit Song of the Vagabonds, Except Catherine's cover was called Hail, Dr. Young. I can kind of hear it. Upward, 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 upward consciousness, consciousness will come. come. Upward, 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 from the primal skull. scum. Individuation is our destination. Hock, Heil, hail, Hawk, hail, hail, hail to, to Dr. Young. Young. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs>
1: that was perfect.
0: Catherine was totally taken with Jung's theory of personality and his words introvert and extrovert, which he defined as whether you turned your psychic energy inward or outward, and sensation versus intuition. When making decisions, do you pay more attention to what's happening in the physical world around you, or do you trust your gut? And This just clicked for Catherine. She took Young's language and, in 1926, cobbled together a little grid with different possible personality combinations. It was the first real blueprint of what would become the Myers-Briggs.
1: You know how people can get fixated on one idea and it just becomes their lens for everything? Like, it could be evolution or dialectical materialism or the Illuminati, varying degrees of validity, of course. But this one idea just explains everything for them. For me, it's always capitalism, capitalism, capitalism. Why did my sink clog? Capitalism. Why is my cat ignoring me? Capitalism. Well, Catherine's universal theory of everything was that personality came in types, and she used type to explain almost everyone's behavior. This urge to put people in personality boxes, it isn't unique to Catherine. The ancient Greeks had a theory with just four boxes. A person could be phlegmatic, choleric, melancholic, or a sanguine type, depending on the balance of fluids in your body. And we've come up with plenty of other personality sorting schemes. Zodiac signs, Harry Potter houses, Sex and the City characters, every single Buzzfeed quiz. But back in the 20s, Catherine had caught onto a few things that made her system especially appealing. First, it was simple enough that anyone could understand it, but the Jungian language gave it a sheen of authority and rigor. But more than that, Catherine's types let people feel unique and seen. The ancient Greeks might tell you you're an angry choleric or a depressive melancholic. A psychologist might say you're neurotic or antisocial. But for the most part, Catherine's system was reassuringly positive. If you're an extroverted, intuitive type, it means you're an explorer, an inventor, keen-minded. If you're an introverted, feeling type... You might be a little quiet and reserved, but that's because you're not hung up on impressing other people. Instead of diagnosing our differences, Catherine's system seemed to affirm them. In her world, everyone had a role to play, and her type system was the gateway to discovering it.
0: And as utopian as that sounds, this line of thinking also had a dark side.
2: When I was reading her parenting advice columns, one thing that struck me was how closely they mirrored some of the language of eugenic thought. She basically believed that one thing that personality assessment could be used for was to identify intellectually strong members of society versus intellectually weaker members of society.
0: For Catherine, it was all about optimizing society ushering people into their ideal roles, and thereby advancing society as a whole. She called for the unique treatment of different types of people.
2: Essentially life plans that would allow the strong to rise to the top, and that would allow the weak either uh, to be sort of brought up to levels of mediocrity, or in some cases simply be. Uh, called off. And she's not specific about what that means. But there certainly is this sense in her writing that if you identify children who are weaker than others, it doesn't make as much sense to give resources to them as it does to give resources to stronger members of society.
0: It is worth noting that this was pre-World War II, and eugenic thought was somewhat mainstream at the time years later, Isabel would inherit some of these ideas, and some still see echoes of them in the indicator today. In 1935, Catherine finally closed her cosmic laboratory of baby training for good. And the next year, at last, she got a chance to meet the man she called her personal god, Carl Jung. She'd actually been writing him letters for years, and sometimes, he'd write back. And now, he'd be in the United States for a conference, and agreed to squeeze Catherine in for a meeting. She dragged Isabel to her meeting, maybe out of nerves, maybe to share this monumental moment with her daughter, who is now nearly 40 years old. But Isabel was unimpressed. She later claimed she didn't even listen to the conversation between her mother and Jung. But for Catherine, the day was transformative. The night before their meeting, she couldn't sleep and stayed up writing another tune about Jung, this time a bit more mundane, The song was literally about how he was coming to New York and was going to give a talk. When the day arrived, it was just a quick appointment in Young's hotel room. Catherine told him how she'd burned her own writing after reading his. And he was kind to her. Their relationship as occasional pen pals had become strained in recent years. He'd been terse with her over what he saw as meddling in other people's affairs, and once expressed irritation that she wasn't using enough postage on her letters, leaving him to pay the difference. But at this meeting, Young encouraged her. He told her that it was a mistake to burn her notes, and that she could have made a real contribution. And then, before they parted, Catherine offered him what she could to support his great work. Money. She handed him a check for $25, what would be about $500 today. She said she wished it could be more.
1: Catherine didn't know it yet, but she had much more to offer the world than $25. Next time, Isabel discovers that her mother's gospel of type might just save her marriage and turns her mother's philosophy into a marketable product. She just has to convince a group of skeptical PhDs that it actually works including one particularly dogged researcher who notices some issues with her indicator, threatening to undo everything she'd worked for.
0: She said to me, uh, I felt like he came over the woods. I sent for the Marines, and they came over the woods shooting at me. So she wrote a fairly... <laughs> she had a file folder said, Stricker, damn him.
1: <laughs> Stricker, damn him.
2: Damn him, right. Uh, that's going to be on my tombstone.
1: This episode was produced by me, Johanna Mayer.
0: And me, Chris Agusa.
1: And me, Ella Fetter. Our music was
0: composed by me, Daniel Peterschmidt,
1: who also mastered this episode. Archival audio was provided courtesy of Peter Geyer. Fact-checking by Dania Abdul-Hamid. When reporting this episode, we relied a lot on Merve Emery's book, The Personality Brokers, If you want to learn more about the story of Catherine and Isabel, that is a great place to start. Nadia Overtelt is our chief content officer, and sometimes she shows us pictures of her cat, Pickles. And look, Pickles is really cute, but the way Nadia talks about her, it's sometimes a little much. If I only
2: have this one child, and if my entire life has to be determined by what I do with her as a mother, then I need to do something extraordinary and I need to do something that is helpful to other people.
1: See you next week with chapter two.